Let's pick up from where we left off last week. We're going to turn in our Bible to John chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The passage opens up with Jesus leaving Judea and traveling back to Galilee. And according to the gospel writer, Jesus takes the most direct route for the journey and cuts through the Samaritan region. En route, he decides to make a bit of a pit stop and he sits down at a well in a place called Sychar. And according to John's account of this moment, Jesus is exhausted after traveling, so he sends the disciples into town to get food, which means that he is alone. And as Jesus sits down at the well, enter stage left, comes a woman to draw water. Now the scene is painted for us and it's set up ready for this conversation that is about to unfold, but there's some helpful, un, uh, helpful detail that is thrown in that opens up our understanding of this scenario a little bit further. This whole interaction takes place in the sixth hour of the day. Which, as we mentioned last week, is the point of the day when the sun is at its highest. Some translations tell us this is about noon. Is the point in which the sun is at the highest in the sky. Therefore, it's the point of the day in which the sun is at its hottest. And this is the moment when most people would shelter from the sun, would spend time in the heat. And in particular, this was a time when people rested from manual activity. This was siesta time. Oh, dear Lord, that we could live in a country whose climate permitted siesta time, but sadly, not for us. This was siesta time, but it wasn't for this nameless woman who approaches the well at this time to draw water. And given the conditions that we've just outlined, it seems like a bit of an odd time to be embarking on this strenuous and manual activity. But of course, as we read on into the passage, we understand the reason why. This woman is a loose woman, not from the panel show, but she's a woman of loose morals, who perhaps is treated with disdain by the other women in the community, and treated like that because of her lifestyle choices. It makes sense then that she would choose to come to the well at a time when she knows that she's going to be alone, and she knows that she's going to avoid the looks and the stares and the comments from the other women within her community. And if that is the case, then what this suggests to us is that the scenario that we're looking in on here is a picture of a woman going about her daily routine. We look in on a snapshot of her regular, everyday activity. And we bring that into our knowledge of the gospel, and we bring that into our understanding of what is about to happen. And as we said last week, that as Jesus sits down at the well, Jesus is in actual fact positioning himself to bring a broken woman into an encounter with himself. 
And this is the obvious conclusion because I'm sure many of us will have read this story a million times before and we we know what the conclusion is. We know how the story unfolds. We know what the punchline is. And the scenario, or the punchline that that Jesus navigates this scenario towards is amazing and it is breathtaking, but we don't focus today on the punchline. Rather, what we focus on is the way that Jesus executes that punchline. The way that he navigates towards this conclusion. In our Pentecostal charismatic world, we just want to skip to the big bit at the end, don't we? But actually, there's gold to be found in looking at the process, because God's in the process. And the very noticeable thing that we recognize right from the beginning is that Jesus is alone. According to John's telling of the story, when Jesus and his ministry team arrive at this place following their extensive ministry tour around the Judean countryside, upon arrival at Sychar, Jesus sends his disciples into town to get food. And instead of going with them, he chooses instead to wait back at the well and rest. And this then is a bit of a rare moment because Jesus is completely on his own some. And there aren't really many moments that we read of in the Scriptures when Jesus and His disciples are separated. There are some, but there aren't many. It would seem that when Jesus calls His disciples to follow Him, that they begin to do life together, and they begin to do life together quite intensely. They eat together, they travel together, they minister together, or at least the disciples ministered alongside Jesus. So what we read in John 4 is significant. And what makes it both stunning and moving It's when we recognize that Jesus is actually setting this moment up for an encounter. The actions of Jesus, leaving Judea when he did to travel to Galilee, the journey that he took, his positioning, his sending of the disciples off on errands, all of this is Jesus moving the pieces around and setting the environment up for an encounter. I wonder... Had the Samaritan woman approached the well and seen a large crowd of men there, and Jewish men at that, would she have continued her journey to the well to draw water? Or is it most likely that she'd have turned around, avoided the situation completely, and decided within herself to come back at a time when the coast was clear? Jesus' actions here, that we overlook sometimes to rush past to the big bit at the end, Jesus' actions here are so purposeful He's cleared the scene. He's adjusted the furniture. He's altered the surroundings to make it possible for this lady to have a life-changing encounter with his reality. He has intentionally removed the distractions and the barriers. He has purposefully taken out of the equation every possible hindrance that would prevent this woman from coming into an encounter with his glory. And when we call that out, we can't help but think, How amazing is that, yeah? How amazing is it to think that there are moments when Jesus clears the scene, when Jesus moves the furniture of life about to set up the everyday moments of our lives for an encounter with himself. And if we believe that that's what Jesus does, then we've got to be willing to look and see those moments. We have to embrace those moments, and we've got to be careful that in those moments where God moves the furniture of life about to set up an encounter, that we don't turn around and put the furniture back where it was and miss out on what he's doing completely. Now, this woman has no idea 
that as she makes this journey that her world's about to be turned completely upside down. She didn't know that day as she picked up her water jar and began the journey that she made every single day. She had no clue that that day would be unlike any other day. She didn't set out looking for an encounter with Jesus. She didn't journey with an expectation that she would meet with Christ. Heck, she didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. We see that from the text. She just picked up her jar like she did every other day and she began the journey that she took every single day. This encounter wasn't on her agenda, but it was on God's. Jesus stripped back the distractions. He stripped back the barriers of her culture and her lifestyle. He inserted himself into her regular routine, and he sat waiting on her to bring her into a life-changing encounter with himself. Can't help but think, I wonder how long he sat. She's normally here by now. She's taking her time the day. But it's amazing to think he cleared the scene and he sat there and he waited for the woman to come to bring her into an encounter. There are moments in which encounters take place that aren't on our agendas, but are very much on God's. And we often build the mindset as Christians that we need to earn access to God's favor and presence. We need to read loads of scripture. We need to pray a certain way for a concentrated amount of time. We need to pursue a certain level of, a, of holiness. We need to receive a certain level of the anointing in order to gain access to his presence. But what if, what if Jesus was actually sitting waiting to be found by us? What if your life-changing encounter and my life-changing encounter happened by just pausing and letting the soul catch its breath? Just pausing and letting the soul understand that actually access to who he is and what he does has already been earned on our behalf. Jesus earned that on the cross. His desire is to be known by us, to be found by us, and his desire to be found by us means that he clears the scene. He moves about the furniture of life, and he sits waiting to be found and discovered within the everyday moments, waiting for the moments when we just be still and know that he is God. Because that's what happened to this lady. She came to a place in the hustle of the day and in the hustle of her life. And boy, according to what we read, she was a bit of a hustler, wasn't she? She came to the place in the hustle of her day when her soul was stilled. And she discovered a knowledge that Jesus was God. She lives out that phrase from that psalm. She's brought to the place of being stilled and knowing that he is God. And what happens here is more than just a chance encounter. This wasn't a hello, how do you do type moment. In this meeting, this woman's entire understanding, her entire worldview, her whole life perspective, her theology and belief structure, the way that she viewed the world, the way that she understood the world, the way that she understood that the world worked and was put together, all of that was completely and utterly turned on its head and transformed. And this very deep, this very intense transformation that is happening here, her whole being is completely turned around and changed. And this entire transformation took place within a conversation with Jesus. 
Just one conversation. This was a life-altering moment. And what's brilliant about the picture that we're painting here is that as we said, Jesus sets this whole thing up. And he sets it up at the side of a well. He doesn't set it up in a synagogue or he doesn't set it up on the temple mount. He doesn't set it up at an altar or a high place or a holy place. He just sits down at the side of a well. It's an everyday environment. It's an everyday encounter. There is nothing special about the setting or the setup for this. There is nothing significant, but yet what we're reading could not be more special and could not be more significant because everything within this encounter breaks the rules everything. Jesus breaks the rules. This encounter, this dialogue is radical in the truest sense of the word. It is radical in so many ways because so many rules are being broken. There's an unmarried man interacting with a woman of loose character and morals. That's a no-no. There's a Jew interacting with a Gentile. This interracial conversation is a massive no-no. And then there's a Jewish rabbi alone with a Gentile woman, a Gentile woman with a colorful track record. And the Jewish rabbi is not only present in this interaction, which in itself is bad enough, but this Jewish rabbi has actually instigated and engaged this prolonged conversation that is very personal and intense and intimate in its interaction. This is a massive heck, and verily, verily, I say unto thee, double heck, no. Everything about this is wrong. Rules are being broken right, left, and center. And that's what makes this so stunningly marvelous. And that's what challenges us a little bit. Jesus breaks the rules. And he breaks the rules by asking a simple question. Will you give me a drink? We've got to recognize the question here. We've got to recognize that Jesus opens up this whole scenario with a question, and what we recognize and underline is that it's a question and it's not a command. He could have commanded it, but he opens everything up with a question, and by asking his question, he does what we all do when we ask a question. He's looking for an answer. Will you give me a drink? He's looking for a yes or a no answer. He's looking for a response, and Actually, as we'll see, this question is not really a straightforward yes or no question when it's a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman. So, in actual fact, what he's looking for is dialogue. He instigates conversation. He's opening up a dialogue, and he opens up a dialogue that puts her at ease, that removes the awkwardness. He's not chastising her. He's not giving her grief. He's not about to make comments on who she is. She's not unsafe in being found in this moment alone. She approaches the well. There's no one else about because everyone's having siesta time and there's a man sitting there. This conversation removes the fear of is she safe or is she unsafe? He's asking for help. He asks a question. He opens up the conversation and he asks a request. And with that request, he begins to unpack her whole belief structure and replace it with a brand new one. He starts up a chat. He begins a friendly dialogue that unpacks the woman's heart and reveals his own heart to her and then takes her on a whole journey of transformation. And he does all of that simply by asking a question and opening up a dialogue. 
He doesn't zap her and supernaturally enforce change. He doesn't say to her, receive an impartation and be changed. He doesn't blow the the shofar, shout Shabba, and announce that she's transformed. He doesn't decree and declare that she is transformed. He doesn't give her a prophetic utterance that further down the line may end up bringing transformation and change. He begins a dialogue. He doesn't announce his identity and command instant change. I am Jesus, bow in my greatness and change yourself immediately. No, he sat down at a well and he began a conversation. And that conversation took her on a journey and Jesus followed that journey with her in her mind and her soul. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? And he begins to interact with what she's saying. He asks a question. She responds with a question. She makes a statement. He responds to that statement. He interacts with the journey that she's going on. And in doing so, he changes her everything. He dialogues with her. And you know what? God wants to dialogue with us. He wants to begin a dialogue with our souls that unpacks what's on our heart, that interacts with our belief structures, with our worldviews, with our theology. He wants to journey us to a place of transformation. He doesn't announce his identity, reveal his presence, and demand instant change. He doesn't zap us with his spirit or power and enforce change, although there are moments when that can happen and when that does happen, so be prepared. But rather what he does He takes us on a journey, a journey that occurs through dialogue and conversation, a journey that takes place through interaction with our souls, a journey of change that revolves all around relationship, that as we behold him, we are transformed more and more into his likeness. And why? Why doesn't God just zap us and conform us to his likeness? It would be easier for everybody, wouldn't it? be easier for you, it'd be easier for me, it'd be easier for him if he just zapped us and made us the way that he wants us to be. But he doesn't do that. Why does he dialogue and transform rather than enforce us to conform? And the reason for that is really simple. It's because he loves us. He cares about us. He cares about our feelings. He cares about our wishes. You could almost say he respects us. And his plan is that we with unveiled faces beholding and reflecting his glory are transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. With every experience of glory comes another level of transformation and change that suggests process. Jesus begins a journey of transformation with us. As we interact with him, as we encounter him, as we dialogue with him, he begins to gently yet powerfully and dynamically transform who we are. And you know what? If we recognize that and we recognize that that is God's plan to dialogue us to a place of transformation, then maybe we need to reflect that model and approach with other people too. We need to reflect that in our interactions with those who aren't yet believers, which means that we don't just preach at them, and demand instant change. You've heard the gospel, now you must instantly believe it and change who you are right now, go. And that's what, but that's what we do, isn't it? In our church circles, right here, you've heard the gospel, now you have a choice to make. Accept it now. Change right now. And we even do it for those that are saved. 
This person says that they're a Christian, but they're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing this and they're doing that. We don't even allow the process within those of us who are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We need to approach gospel interactions with respectful intentions, with regards for people's feelings. We need to let the primary motive be to reflect God's heart of love towards those that don't know him yet. Because this is Jesus' intention with this woman at the well. He planned to reflect love. He planned to communicate change to her belief structures. And he did it not by demanding that she instantly change in the presence of his greatness, but he did it by opening up a conversation and by beginning a journey with her. Let's be a church. Let's be a people who dialogue with others and who journey them into the heart of God. Let's not be a people who announce gospel and command others to receive it instantly. It's with loving kindness that he draws us to repentance, the scripture says. So let's be known for reflecting the loving kindness of his heart, because that's what we see Jesus do. He says to the woman, will you give me a drink? Look, close, look closely at the response. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The woman is astonished that Jesus is even asking this question. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? It's almost like she's saying, you're breaking the rules. How can you even ask me this? This is against all of the rules. In fact, John, in recording this for us, tells us in brackets, he explains why this is such a big deal. He says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, by asking this question, is heavy breaking the rules here. He's breaking them all. And in fact, if you have your Bible with you, you'll notice that on this verse, there is a footnote that provides an alternative translation to the statement that small letter A in brackets. And if you follow down to the bottom of the page, you'll find the small letter A and there's an alternative translation for that statement. And it says there, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. There are clearly massive divides between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. And last week we touched briefly on a bit of history about this. So let's paint a bit of a fuller picture this morning. So about 700 years before Jesus was born, the Assyrian people invaded, attacked, and captured the area called Samaria. They took all the middle, upper-class Israelites, all those of value and importance, into exile and filled the land with foreigners. And these foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jewish people, and as well as their marriages being mixed, so also became their customs and the culture within the land. In fact, the remaining Jewish people began to adopt some of the religious beliefs and some of the religious practices of these foreigners. Now, 2 Kings 17 talks about a time when, after the exile, the Jewish people returned to their homeland, and they began to teach the Samaritan people the ways of the Lord again. And while they accepted most of their teaching, they also rejected a lot of their teaching and continued in their own practices. These mingled practices, these mingled beliefs, these mingled customs meant that, in the words of one theologian, the Israelites viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. The issues separating the Israelites and the Samaritans were ethnic, racial, and religious in nature. Between these two people groups, 
we see historical and established problems with racism, bigotry, and social status. To the Jews, the Samaritans were racially impure, religiously heretical, and ceremonially unclean. They were to be avoided at all costs. But here in this text, in John chapter 4, we have Jesus, a Jew, pursuing the soul of a woman who is a Samaritan. Jesus breaks the rules. And he purposefully and he intentionally crosses the ethnic, racial, and religious divide to pursue a soul, to bring healing to that soul, to release hope to that individual. And what Jesus does here is huge. And the extremity of it is perhaps best understood in unpacking the explanation that Jews don't use Samaritan dishes. Now, let's bring that into a nearly modern context. About 60 years ago, in stores up and down America, you would find water fountains for drinking. Wherever you found a water fountain, you would normally find two. One would be labeled white, and the other would be labeled colored. One fountain was clearly then for people who were white, and the other was for those of different skin color and race. Such was the extent of racial difference within the country and indeed reflected throughout the wider Western world. Such was the extent of racial difference within the country that it was considered wrong for two human beings of differing race and skin color to drink from the same source. In other words, whites didn't use the dishes of colored people. Now here in John chapter 4, we see that played out metaphorically. And please hear the metaphor here. And in this, using metaphorical language, Jews, the metaphorical equivalent of white people, I'm not saying Jews were white, I'm just saying it's metaphorical. Jews, the metaphorical equivalent of white people, did not associate with or even use the same dishes as Samaritans, the metaphorical equivalent of black people. This sentence in brackets with the footnote underneath opens up this passage hugely to a whole new layer of stunning beauty. And we apply the metaphor to this moment. And what we see is this. Jesus, the white man, sits down at a well-labeled colored, and he says to a black woman, can I have a drink from your cup? Now, again, it's metaphor. I'm not suggesting Jesus was white. Calm down. But in this metaphorical moment, Jesus, a white man, sits down at a well-labeled colored and asks a black woman, can I use your cup? Now, in this moment, the, the lines are clearly drawn and understood. Jesus understood them. The woman approaching the well clearly understood them. John, narrating the gospel for us, calls them out because he understands them and he wants us to understand them. There are clear lines of demarcation that have been culturally lived and have been accepted for generations. They are the spoken and unspoken rules of this generation that everybody adheres to and have become the very fabric of their society and the rules of social interaction. And Jesus Christ crosses these lines. He breaks through those barriers. In fact, he bursts through those barriers to bring a soul and indeed as a result, many souls and an entire culture of people into an experience of the radical inclusiveness of God. 
There are clear marked lines of racial, religious, and social prejudice within this time and this culture. There is segregation and mindsets and attitudes that divide people one from the other. And we see these called out for us. In fact, they are written in a sentence. Jews do not use Samaritans' dishes. They are called out, and they're called out alongside the presence and the activity of Jesus. And we look at what he does in relation to those things. And we don't find them standing aloof. We don't find him standing apart from it all, shaking his head and wagging his finger, saying, I will have nothing to do with this. Turning a blind eye to all, turning a deaf ear and pretending it doesn't happen. Rather, we're presented here in this moment with two clear camps built around racial, religious, and social beliefs, and we discover that actually Jesus is in neither. He's found somewhere in the middle of them both with a hand reaching out to both of them, calling all of them within the boundaries and the borders of God's radical, inclusive heart of love and compassion. Now this passage, in this moment, we said all revolves around Jesus making a journey. That's what we focused on profoundly last week. And the journey that he makes involves effort. We know this because he sits down at the well because he's tired from the journey that he's just made. He's engaged effort. And the whole purpose we've said, the whole purpose behind Jesus making this journey was to meet with the woman coming to the well in the sixth hour of the day, which means that Jesus engages in a journey. In fact, Jesus engages effort to break through barriers and division. He makes an effort to tear down institutional, cultural, historical, spoken and unspoken barriers of division in order to bring souls into an experience of the heart of God and church as he did, so must we. Let us not stand within camps whose borders are established through racial, religious, political or social prejudices. Neither let us stand aloof from these issues, refusing to be part of it, turning a blind eye and a deaf ear and just pretending that it doesn't exist. But instead, let's stand in the middle of it all as God's representatives, stretching out the hand of God to everybody and calling them all within a camp with entirely different borders, the borders of God's love, which are all reaching, far encompassing, but radically life-changing. What if the job of the church and the Christian was to sit down at the wells in our community and our society, the wells that are labeled with prejudice and division and announce, everyone who drinks the water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water Jesus gives will never thirst. Indeed, what he gives will well up into eternal life. What if we announced with our voice and demonstrated with our efforts that there is another way, there is a better way, a way that leads to fullness of life, a way that leads to everlasting life, a way that brings fulfillment and satisfaction, and it's not found in prejudice or bigotry or discrimination or racism. It's not found in one-sided political viewpoints, religious superiority or hedonistic pursuits. It's not found in superior mindsets that put other people down. It's only found in Jesus Christ. The inclusiveness of Christ is massive. His welcome is huge. The costs of following him are high, however. He does demand change and transformation. He welcomes everyone. He welcomes all to be part of who he is, but he requires everyone to be changed to become like who he is. But he journeys us towards that transformation. He dialogues with our souls. 
With kindness and compassion, He changes our innermost being to such an extent that none of us will ever say that that process is easy, but every one of us will say it's worth it. Jesus breaks the rules. He crosses the divide. He starts a conversation. He starts a dialogue with a woman. He says, can I have a drink from your cup? And the woman is dumbfounded. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for that? She's quick to point out to him that the request that is put before her is against the rules. And as she makes that statement, Jesus finds the opening that he's looking for. He begins the dialogue that pushes her past the boundaries of the rules to focus on something much greater. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he'd have given you living water. Jesus ultimately says to her, if you understood whose presence it is you find yourself in, then you'd realize that there's something greater in offer and the greater is found not just in understanding who I am, but it's found in pushing past the boundaries of the rules. See, her rules and indeed her understanding of Jewish religion had her focusing on the rules. But what Jesus was offering was something much greater than that. It wasn't a religious experience. It was a relationship. It was a relationship that involved a revelation of him. And here then is yet another layer to this passage. Because here at this well, God meets with humanity. That's the picture. God turns up in humanity's world And God meets with humanity. What we see here is that religion dictates that there are rules to that interaction. There's a code of conduct for this moment. There's a clear set of do's and there's a clear set of don'ts. And what is clear from this scenario is that if religion's rules are followed, then the rules would prevent a life-transforming encounter from ever taking place. If this woman turned around and said, I can't offer you a drink. In fact, I can't even be here. I'm out of here. She'd have completely missed out on what God was planning to do. Religion, with its rules and its code of conduct, with its inherent traditional, cultural, spoken and unspoken do's and don'ts, religion limits the experience of God. Whereas what Jesus does here is brilliant. He breaks the rules of religion but he does it with kindness and respect. He compassionately begins the dialogue with the woman. He begins a friendship. He begins a relationship with the woman who approached the well in the sixth hour of the day. And his starting point isn't the rules. If the starting point was the rules, he wouldn't have asked her, can I use your cup? Because it's against the rules. So his starting point isn't the rules. His starting point isn't the do's and the don'ts. His starting point is kindness and friendship and compassion and interaction and relationship because that's his heart. He pushes past the rules of religion to begin a relationship with a woman, but more than that, he pushes past the rules of religion to bring her into a revelation of who he is. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he'd given you living water. His statement is, if you understood my identity, then your interaction with me would be completely different. He says, you don't know who I am. And this is again amazing because the very statement that Jesus makes here, you don't know who I am, is intended to make her say, all right then, big shot, tell me who you are. 
This statement is meant to begin the dialogue. And in fact, that is exactly what happens because she says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? She's like, who are you? Jesus sits down at the well. He clears the scene. He sets up an encounter and he's not interested in the religious inventory of her soul. He's not interested in whether she's obeying the rules. He's not interested, all right there, hello, nice to meet you. Let's just do a wee check on whether you're following the code of conduct in regards to God properly. No, his desire is to love upon her. It's to show care towards her. It's to bring her into a revelation of who he is. See, religion is about rules that ultimately limit our understanding and limit our experience of God. But God's desire is for relationship with us, to visit us with kindness and respect and compassion to bring in friendship with our souls, a relationship that brings us into a very life-transforming revelation of who he is. And as we call that out, and as we journey to conclusion, here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is our faith based on religion or is it based on relationship? Is our spirituality, our interaction with God, is it based upon a set of do's and don'ts, a code of conduct, a list of rules? Or is it about pursuing intimacy and relationship with him? You see, our answer to that question will determine the way that we interact with him, but it will also determine the experience that we have of him. God's heart is to bring every one of us into that life-transforming friendship with his kindness that transforms our understanding of who he is and, and what he's like. But we have to guard our hearts against religious mindsets if we ever want to step into that. Religion and its rules will limit our experience and understanding of him. Look again at the woman's response to his question. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? She says, you can't ask me for a drink. And we might be splitting hairs here, but notice that the statement doesn't say, religion stops me from giving you a drink. But she says, you can't ask me to do this. Religion says you can't. Religion says you can't behave like that. Her religious framework and understanding is dictating the way that she thinks Jesus can and should behave in his interaction with her. You can't behave like that. You can't do this because religion says so. We've got to be very careful that we don't build and establish a set of rules within our spirituality that seek to dictate the way that God can and should behave within our lives and in his interactions with us. Because who are we to establish a code of conduct for God? But yet we do. Oh, no, 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 not us. Not us in our Pentecostal charismatic circles. We are free. We like to welcome God and let him do what he's want. We don't set rules, but you know what? 100% we absolutely do. Based upon our understanding of God, based upon our previous experiences of Him, we establish a set of rules for how God behaves and interacts with us. We have a set of do's and don'ts. We have what we believe God does do and what we believe He doesn't do, what we believe is of God, what we believe isn't of God. And when we visit churches or when we see things on the telebox or when we hear about moves of God, we are immediately forming our opinion on whether it is or whether it isn't of Him whether he is in it or whether he isn't in it. 
And you see, in evangelical Christianity, we boldly and at times very arrogantly speak of religion negatively. We tend to look at those outside our evangelical Pentecostal Christianity, those whose expressions involve ritual and liturgy and repetition. We look at them at times down our noses and define them as being religious, when in actual fact, in evangelical Pentecostal Christianity, even where focus is placed on relationship and experience, we can still exist with religious hearts too. And we can still establish frameworks for God's action and expression. And often that's based on past experience. And often that's based upon our current level of understanding and where we're at in the journey. But equally and more often than not, it's based upon our own preferences and levels of comfort. We set up a framework by which we decide what is and isn't acceptable, what we think God does and doesn't do, and therefore what we will allow Him to do and what we won't. And what we have to realize is that in the Gospels of Jesus, it is recorded for us time and time again that God walks into life after life and he turns up into scenario after scenario. And every time that Jesus walks into a room, every time he walks into a life, every time he walks into a situation, he breaks the code of conduct that people have established for God and brings a revelation of who God really is and what God's really like. And the scary thing about that is the Bible says this sentence, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's scary because we quite like it when we open up the Bible and we're reading the story and we're like, oh, look at them with a religious mindset. And here comes Jesus and he's about to completely change their understanding of God. And we love looking on at that. But here's the problem. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means what he did then, he still does now. And what he did for them, he's going to start doing for us. Maybe, just maybe, he might just begin to do the same with us. Have we begun to establish a code of conduct for God in our lives? Have we perhaps built a framework for him based upon our own preferences? maybe even revolving around our character and nature instead of his? Have we perhaps constructed a bit of a box for him by which we define, decide definitively, this is what God does do in this box, and this is what God doesn't do in this box? Is it maybe time we handed the rule book over to God and let him set the rules? And do you know what? I really do believe that in this season that we are in on planet Earth, Churches that will step into the fullness of what God has for them are churches that hand the rule books over and say, God, okay, this is your house, so you have permission to live in it whatever way you want. You're in charge, so actually here's our rules. We give them to you. You write the rule book for us. You decide who you're going to be. You decide who we're going to be and the way that we're going to act. Is it time we handed the rule book over? And permit me to be personal. Is it time you handed the rule book over to God? and allowed him to set the rules for you. What do we mean by that? What we mean is this. Oh, visions, dreams, words of knowledge, hearing the voice of God. No, no, God doesn't do that with me. Okay. Is that his rules or is that your rules? Oh, speaking in tongues and manifestations of the Spirit. No, no, that's not what God does in my life. Okay. So who decided that? Did you decide that or did God decide that? Raising my hands in worship, singing out spontaneously, being expressive, dancing, haying, hoeing. No, no, that's not in my character and nature. 
okay. So who defined that as absolute? Are we building a set of rules around our character and nature? Or should we be building it around his character and nature? Oh, sharing my faith with other people, believing for miracles, praying for people, being used by God, pursuing the purpose of God upon planet earth. That's not the way he moves through my life. Okay, who made that rule? Did God make that rule? Or did you make that rule? We could go on and on and on. And I'm not trying to be aggressive or arrogant because I'm challenged to the core myself with this. But there are so many different ways in our thought processes, in our beliefs, in our attitudes that we construct a code of conduct for God and decide this is the way that he behaves and interacts with me and this is the way he doesn't. And don't get me wrong, it might well be that we never speak in tongues. It might well be that God doesn't use us to deliver prophetic words to people. It might not be that he uses us to bring miracles. But surely we should allow that to be his decision rather than ours. Yes, there may be some things that he doesn't release us into that he does to others, and that's totally okay. But the point I'm trying to make is that all too often we make the decision about that rather than letting him make the decision. We can very easily establish a set of rules for how God can play in our game of life when in actual fact we need to recognize, well, it's actually his game of life that he asks us to play in. So we need to find out what his rules for that are. Maybe it's time we ripped up the rule book. Maybe it's time we removed the code of conduct and the decisions of what we believe God does do and what we believe God doesn't do because there is something greater waiting on the other side of the rules. There's a revelation of the kindness and the friendship of God that completely transforms our understanding of him. Following the rules of religion will only ever limit our understanding and experiences of him. But when we let him rip up the rule book, it brings us into a deeper revelation of him. Now, please hear me this morning. I'm not saying that we take the word of God and throw it out. No, the word of God sets our code of conduct, doesn't it? It is the rules that he gives to us. I'm not talking about that. What we're talking about is the fact that in John chapter 4, Jesus sets up an encounter with a woman and the woman approaches it and the rules of her religion dictate the way that Jesus can behave with her. And so he has to break those rules and rip the rule book up in order to release her fully into who she's meant to be. And all too often we set up rules about how he can interact with us and behave with us. And the only way that we can step into the greatness that he has in store for us is when we rip up the rules and say, actually, you're God in my life, not me. You can decide this stuff. And so this morning, I want to encourage us for a moment just to do exactly that. 